Jeremiah chapter 17, if you'll turn there please, we'll begin reading uh, in verse 1, even though this is backing up a little bit into last week's message, we are going to read um, through verse 10 only, Jeremiah 17, 1 through 10. God's word declares, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills, O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders, and you even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green and will... Not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. The heart is deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. Even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. This morning's message is actually a passage I've been looking forward to really since we, before we began the study. It is one of the passages that uh, moved me to do this study, to tell you the truth. It is uh, one of about four or five sections of Jeremiah that uh, I felt were critical and needed to be addressed, and it drew me into the balance of the book, really. Uh, so I've been anticipating this one for some time. And uh, it's really in a very unique little portion of Jeremiah that's different than a lot of the rest of the book. Um, it is a portion that's probably more comparable to wisdom literature than it is to prophetic material. Uh, wisdom literature would be like Proverbs and many of the Psalms, uh, Job, those books, James in the New Testament uh, are in the wisdom category. And these, uh, this section, and uh, some of what we're going to be doing next week, <clears throat> fall into that category. Um, and you will notice some of it is almost verbatim out of either the Psalms or uh, the same concepts that we find in several places in Proverbs. And, uh, but it is developed in Jeremiah's time for Jeremiah's audience and for us within the context of what we have seen. And we're going to see it applied to the people of Judah, um, but we're also going to see it applied uh, to our circumstances as we put ourselves into the passage prior, uh, looking at the circumstances of a society that claimed Christianity or claimed to be God's people and how they went so far wrong. 
And when we come and look at our own society and say, well, we have this claim to a heritage, but we have gone so far wrong, how does it happen? And so we have really placed ourselves into the Jeremiah, uh, and appropriately so, perhaps even more so than uh, many generations since then that we see in this age on a scale that is unprecedented, not only in a single nation or culture, but globally as well. And we can try to put the blame in various places. Um, I think we all are familiar with where it is, and it's probably not one, but a multitude of places that uh, correlate in their antagonism against God's truth. And the sorry part is our complicitness with them in dragging down the truth of God's word to a commonplace where um, it is neither known nor honored. And so we come to a portion of wisdom literature that um, has a context that we don't want to lose track of, and I won't let you this morning lose track of that context. Um, It is things we can quote, we can put on plaques, put on the wall, put on your screensaver, uh, and do things like that, and often forget Um, who it was written to and why. And that's why we want to uh, remind ourselves regularly of that. Before we get into the passage too, uh, specifically, let's go Lord in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you again for your word before us. And its power and its instruction for us. And Lord, we pray you might quiet our hearts to receive that instruction. Your spirit might have liberty to work freely, uh, both in what is said and how it is received. And that we might remain true to your word, not only in the idea of communicating the meaning of words and such, but also true to its intent. For we know that there were many among the Pharisees, uh, the days that you walked this earth, that thought they were keeping your word to the letter, but had violated its spirit so deeply that it was an offense to you. And Lord, guard us from that kind of thinking and that kind of handling of your word. And we know that for that to happen means that we need to be completely dependent upon your spirit to lead us into your truth, to illuminate us to it, and also that we might be tender to its authority to command our day, our lives, our actions, and our will. For we call ourselves by your name. And help us, Lord, to be reminded not to do so lightly. We pray this in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I shared, we come into this wisdom material Um, And wisdom material has to be handled a little bit differently um, because it seems sometimes to jump from here and there. um, But I assure you that Jeremiah is very focused in this passage, as most of the wisdom people are. Um, We look at Proverbs and we see how much it is broken up into verses. And we sometimes say, well, this verse doesn't seem to have anything to do with the prior 
Um, but in a lot of our study, especially with our men's groups, we do a lot of studies in Proverbs. Um, we tried to really see the, the cohesiveness of these wisdom passages. And so we're going to see this morning, as we get here, uh, to see the cohesiveness. Obviously, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 um, have uh, a very strong message, but it is not to be extracted out of the context, not only of the events that Jeremiah is dealing with, but even the other wisdom passages around it, uh, and really to degree what we've already seen in the description of sin in Israel. Um, we now are going to see this portrayed for us or communicated to us uh, less on a historical uh, foundation and more on a wisdom foundation, a, a, a principle that of what the heart is like. And so we're going to see these principles put forward by Jeremiah. Principle, and, and it's going to be, this is setting the stage for what's coming uh, later in the chapter where we're going to have a wisdom section that's going to establish principle for the, the condemnation of God on the society of Judah. Um, but we're also going to see on a very practical level, of their actions. And we're going to see him just take one element of the law and say, let's just see you keep one element of the practical side. And he's going to select the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath. Let's see you do that. Just do that. Just just commit yourself to one thing. And we're going to talk about that um, really next week more so. Um, But it is all founded on these principles and these principles are, are not secondary to the exercise of God's wrath, but they are central to it. Um, they are the core of what it means to uh, be either under his judgment or under his blessing. And this is what he puts forward. He says, you're going to have a curse or a blessing. And uh, it is not really something that is measured by God's will, it is measured rather by your faith. And the word here is trust, and we have sung that consistently in our earlier part of the service. We have focused on that in our singing, um, but we want to use this word and understand it and broaden it outside of just the religious usage of it, that you have to have faith in God. Um, Well, what does that mean? For us, usually what that means is, well, I accepted Jesus as my Savior to save me from my sin. Well, okay, (laughs) good start. Um, But if that's the extent of what you mean by faith in God, uh, you likely don't really have faith in God. Because nowhere do I find in Scripture that that is the extent of faith. The faith is far beyond that. Um, It begins there, but if it stays there, it is like an an embryo that never comes out of the womb. And and we know that something's wrong. Uh, Something is sick about that. And from a biblical perspective, a faith that says, I have trusted Jesus to take away my sins and to give me, to get me out of hell, but never develops into any kind of, of life that is characterized, that is, that is measured, um, both 
qualitatively and quantitatively that is measured um, by your faith and that people look at and say, there's his faith at work. Um, if, if your faith isn't that, it isn't genuine. It will not endure, and it certainly is not one that pleases God. And so when we find this statement, trust, we want or belief or faith, we're going to try to broaden our ideas of it uh, into realms that you might say, well, my faith doesn't belong there. And if you have that idea in your mind, in any facet of your life, any little closet in the house of you, um, you need to eradicate it. Because that is a place where God isn't allowed. If you say my faith shouldn't be there. And so we're going to uh, transect uh, many areas of your life this morning, I hope, and uh, that may offend you somewhat, and it may startle you somewhat, um, and that's not really my intent. My intent is just to get you to understand the, the extent of what faith really is, genuine faith. And so let's look at our passage this morning, and uh, we are called upon right away in verse 5, thus says the Lord, um, Jeremiah has this message. It is clearly a, a section of wisdom um, for all generations and not just for his generation. And uh, we find this declaration, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. And so we have a very clear directive um, that here's the foundation of being cursed by God. Now, I also want to take you to the last part of that verse because we've talked a lot about the heart and the heart is going to come into play again. Obviously, we get to verse 9. Um, but we've talked extensively about the hard-heartedness of Israel. and We just got done with a passage about sin being etched on their heart um, with a pen of diamond and their stone of their heart. I mean, that's pretty significant. And so we find this condition of man, and it says, well, how does your heart get there? How does the heart depart from the Lord? Um, the heart is departing from the Lord when we begin to take trust that should be in God and begin to put it in man and in flesh. That we trust men. We trust them more than God. And this has become the condition largely, not just bear my majority, but largely this is the condition I see uh, in the church in this age. And by this age, I don't mean in my lifetime. I mean in the last couple hundred years. And I am just echoing, really, what some of the great preachers of the last two or three hundred years have been saying themselves. Perhaps not in these words, um, but they have seen the principle. They haven't necessarily been able to put a finger on it quite as easily as we can. And we make fun of some of the ways that they tried to put a finger out. They saw something wrong. They saw the church going the wrong way, trusting in man, and we laugh at some of the illustrations they used, uh, like uh, having hot and cold running water in your house um, and, and going at speeds over 20 miles an hour, faster than a horse can run. Um, those kinds of things, they condemned. And you might say, well, they were really 
what they were battling against was the incursion of modernity into the church, those modern concepts. And, and what they did was they took illustrations of the, of, of technological advances. And, and I'm going to tell you here, quite honestly, what they decried in their society is no fundamentally not different than what I do from this pulpit when I sit there and harass you over watching the TV and having this little thing in your palm that you can't live without. It is no different than me sitting at my table at home and saying, if you bring that to the table, you're not going to eat with me. Go away. Well, they felt the same way about other modern conveniences that we now take for granted. What were they seeing in the church? They were seeing that men were moving more and more to trust in man. And we have come to the point of trusting in man to such a level on so great a scale that we are blind to it even though it is the monster that is consuming the church, we trust in man. Now let's go back to Jeremiah's day a little bit and just see how it was played out then before we start to address it too much now and before we laugh too loudly and point the finger and say how dumb were those preachers 200 years ago. In Jeremiah's day, here's what it meant to trust in man. And it spanned a lot of years. This is a principle that I believe God may have given to Jeremiah very early in his ministry. Remember that, that prophetic books are not chronological. They, they don't get, they, they, that's not their focus. And so this could have been some very early material or late, but it spans the whole 40 years of Jeremiah's ministry and uh, that it, it applies to. And so, what does it mean that they're going to trust in man? Well, it spans all the way from those who trusted the false prophets who said, come on, this is Judah, this is Jerusalem, that's the Temple Mount. Forget the fact of what's going on at the temple, it's the temple. God can't turn his back on that, that's his house. And so you have all these prophets and priests who are declaring this message that is not of God, that is not consistent with his word, and Judah trusted in it. They didn't go into the law and look. How do we know? They didn't even have the law. They had lost it until Josiah found it, until the the reconstructors found a copy. They had lost it. They weren't keeping it. They were completely and entirely trusting in the word of prophets and priests because they had no clue what was in this book themselves. How else did they trust in man? Well, that was on the religious level. On a political level, um, several times throughout the course of Jeremiah's ministry, you are going to have... Um, the king and the princes, the leadership of Judah, seeking political ways to solve the problem of the impending and sometimes the already arrived uh, dominance of Babylon. And so the warning was out there, don't run to Egypt, don't align yourself with them, don't go out there and and form uh, military or political alignments with Egypt, you're my people. 
And I would condemn that. I can't bless you if you do that. And the prophets went, not just Jeremiah, but other of the prophets went and said, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And the king looked at it and says, well, it just doesn't make sense to take on the Assyrians, for example, by myself. I should align myself with this, their enemies. And so my enemy's enemy should be my friend. Sound familiar? Still a very popular concept politically today. In fact, it's being used on you um, by our government um, for the last several years. The enemy of our enemy is our friend. Well, that's not really true. But we trust in man. God says, you don't need any allies if you have me as your ally. (laughs) The almighty one. But you want to trust in man. This is why Israel wasn't allowed to have chariots. Don't trust in those technologically advanced weapons. Trust in God. Do you trust me? And again and again and again, prophets went before kings and said, don't go to Egypt. Don't go over to these other, the Moabites, the Ammonites, any of these other neighbors and try to get aligned with them to get a force that might be considered from a human perspective, from a fleshly perspective, sufficient to deal with Babylon because it will never be strong enough to deal with Babylon because if you do this, you are the one cursed and the ones that will be blessed and I will be fighting for them will be the Babylonians. I will be on their side. So you choose. And here in the political military realm, we find the people of Israel choosing over and over again to violate Trusting in the Lord, they're going to trust in man. And even later in Jeremiah's ministry, much later than where we are at here in uh, this portion of Scripture, we're going to see when we get into later chapters, there's going to be multiple rebellions uh, formulated against the Babylonians, which would be in direct um, disobedience to the prophetic word of God saying, Babylon is my instrument to punish you with. And instead of submitting themselves to Babylon, um, and by the way, the Jews did learn this lesson very well. Um, we're gonna, later on, when they were told Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by an enemy, um, Daniel tells them this is going to happen. Um, Jerusalem doesn't rebel at all. They uh, greet <laughs> they uh, greet Alexander the Great. They open the doors, they line the, the entryway, they dress all in white, and they surrender the city to him when he shows up. They learned a lesson. But this generation hadn't learned that lesson. Trust in the Lord. And if this is his instrument to destroy the city, then we're going to submit to that instrument. But we find that while Jeremiah calls king after king and captive after captive to submit, 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 just surrender, because these are God's agents doing God's work. You need to just trust God. He will take care of you. Submit. And instead of submitting, they rebelled. Rebelled and rebelled. And in fact, sometimes they're going to flat out say, no, we don't want to do it that way. Just blatant rebellion. Sometimes it's more subtle. We're going to get 
to chapter 29, where not only is it a problem in Judah and Jerusalem, and that's why Babylon had to come not just once, but three times to sack Jerusalem, was because of their rebellion. But also, in the land of Babylon, there was an attempt to raise up rebellion. And we're going to find Jeremiah not only preaching to the left behinds, but also writing letters, prophetic letters, to the in-captivity people, saying, don't rebel, just get along with them. And he tells them to do weird things when we get to Jeremiah 29. Um, Plant some gardens, build a house, marry off your kids, because you're going to be there. Just settle in and pray for the peace of Babylon. Pray for Babylon? Yep. Pray for the peace of the city you're in. But they didn't want to trust God, nor God's instrument, and so they chose rebellion, which just brought more curse upon them. And so this is the historical milieu of this wisdom passage of you are a cursed people if you trust in man. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, in man's ways, in, in, in men's words, in men's wisdom, in, in men's rebellion, in the minds of men, in the ways of men. You trust in that. You put your faith there. You give credence to their quote-unquote wisdom. Um, you're cursed by me because you're putting your trust in flesh and in your own strength, instead of me, God. Not trusting in God. And so you're going to be cursed. And so we are called to this. And as I said, in this age of the church, we have seen us steadily decline in our trust of the Lord, and steadily um, and now emphatically increase in our trust in men. to the point that there are significant portions of Scripture that good Baptist preachers are compromised significantly um, because it doesn't go along with their American ideologies. That they are convinced are blessed by God because, after all, don't we have a song that says, God bless America? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And if your trust is in the documents of men more than it is in this one declared here, in this book here, um, you're in trouble. You are, according to this verse, cursed. You're under the curse of God. If we continue to keep trusting in men, trusting in men, trusting in men. And this is in every avenue of your life. The pundits are out there, aren't they? I mean, you can get online, you can get on the, the 24-hour cable news stations, and you can have, what do they call them, talking heads, that'll just give you gushing out all this advice and all this quote-unquote wisdom, and it's all foolishness. And what they all have in common all of them have in common is a disregard for the capital T, truth, God's word. Sometimes even while they're using God's word, or I should say abusing God's word, misusing God's word, 
they are leading people away from obeying God's word and trusting in the one true and living God. You should trust in man. Trust in man's die. Trust the Constitution. Trust the popular vote. Trust democracy. Trust um, our financial advice that we give you. Trust our parenting advice that we give you. Uh, the poor Roberts went to the homeschool convention. Now you've got more advice than you'll ever know how to put into place. Um, you know what you need? You need to read God's word. We have an entire psych community, entire legal community, entire uh, science community, and we trust what they say. We trust our doctors more than we trust this book. And I've lived long enough now to realize doctors are guessing. They are. I mean, I remember my mom sitting down and saying, well, we just can't have this this lard, this is bad for you. We're going to have margarine. It's going to be better for us. Margarine. Well, then it came out that margarine was worse than plastic. You might as well eat plastic. It's like one chemical bond different than plastic. And it kills turkeys. They, they, margarine was developed to fatten turkeys. Did you know that? And it killed them all. So they diverted it to human consumption. <laughs> um, kind of interesting history, the lesson there on food. Um, and now, guess what? the scientists are saying you should go back to lard to bake with because it has no trans fats and has all... It's like, well, why didn't they tell me that 70 years ago? Not 70 years ago, sorry. In the 70s. (laughs) I'm not 70 years old. Why didn't they tell us that in the 70s? Because it's guesswork. And and half of our country's old people are on statin drugs and, and then suddenly they come out with, oh, cholesterol isn't really the issue. Oh, I've been fighting cholesterol all these years and now it's not the issue. I've lived long enough to realize that science just keeps doing this. My doctors just keep doing this. You're supposed to be sedentary, then you're supposed to be active, you're supposed to have fiber, then you have to have this, and just keeps going cyclically and cyclically wherever the drug companies want them to go. Why do you trust them? Why do we trust science? Why do we, that tells you that you used to be a a piece of slime in a pool somewhere. Why do you trust it? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. You put your faith in that, and I don't care what sector of life, I picked on food, uh, I picked on science, I can pick on financial sector just as easily. We are convinced of capitalism, and, and I'm sure all of you believe Bernie Sanders is the epitome of, of financial evil because of socialism. Never mind that the Bible teaches some basic principles that if were implemented among Christians consistently with God's word would look a lot like socialism. See, the problem with socialism isn't socialism. The problem with socialism is people. It doesn't matter what economic system you put yourself under, it's corrupted by people. We are called to share all things in common. That's what the early church did. What does that sound like to you? Socialism. That we have enough love for one another to care for each other's needs and recognize that I might have a lot today and he has a little, but maybe 
A year from now, he's going to have a lot, and I'll have a little. And so we share in common, and but we work hard, um, recognizing that God's word says, if you don't work, neither should you eat. And so we are not going to encourage laziness or pay for that. Um, but we are certainly going to be loving enough, and that is socialism, but it only works with Christians. But guess what? Democracy only works with Christians. It's the only way it can work. Is you have people surrendered, to a common good um, and driven by a spirit of righteousness. It's the only way it can work. And so we can go across all these different aspects of your life and ask the question, who do you trust? When the science community come, came out with the quote-unquote theory of evolution, and they just drop the idea that it's a theory anymore because they act like it's the truth. Um, here's what our theologians did. Oh, we got to find... It conflicts with the Bible. What are we going to do? Well, the Bible can't mean what it says. That's all there can be. The Bible can't mean what it says when it says uh, 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 morning and night was the first day. Oh, it can't be. It, can't. it must mean epochs. It must mean ages. And we began to compromise. We didn't re-examine science. We didn't go after science and say, you idiots, what kind of interpretation is that of the evidence? No, we compromised our Bibles. And our Bible handbooks and our theology texts, and we compromised the truth. This didn't happen lately. I mean, in my lifetime, this was happening before I ever became a pastor. Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Think about that. Think of how deeply ingrained trusting in man, whether it be in whatever realm, how ingrained it is in us to trust in man, to trust the bankers, to trust the teachers, to trust the scientists, to trust the doctors, to trust even priests and prophets who are proclaiming messages we like to hear, how we trust in men and are ignorant of God's word. How can we trust in that which we don't even know because we don't read it? Cursed is the man who trusts in man. And so we are already under a curse. And so when we look at the statistics of things, and pastors love the statistics of our society degenerating, especially since the 60s, um, because we kicked prayer out of schools. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't know how you can do that. I'm pretty sure when I was in school, I prayed before every test. Oh, Lord, help me remember things I didn't study. I mean, that was a prayer I had every single test, you know. Um, so you can't kick prayer out of schools. What they mean is corporate prayer that doesn't belong, I don't believe, led by teachers that are not necessarily believers or administrators that believe weird things. Um, but we pick on those statistics and we say, well, look at, the divorce, look at what happened to marriage, to family, to education, to, to uh, morality, to, to sexuality. Look at all these things, and they're just degenerating. And it, it's, well, that is not, 
I've said this before about abortion, that that is not calling for curse. That degeneration is the curse. Because long before 1962, we trusted in man in this nation. We stopped trusting in God in churches a long time before that. And the degeneration we are seeing is the curse of God. It's not going to bring the curse of God. We already are under it. We're just dazed and don't even want to believe that. And just as I shared, um, go through and look at, you want to complain about abortions, but every I've tried to study every passage that deals with it directly, and each and every one of them, God says that this is, that, Pregnant women's bellies will be ripped open as a judgment of God. Not that it deserves judgment of God. It is the judgment of God. All these things, the degeneration of our society is the curse. Why? Because a long time ago in this nation, we trusted in men and our preachers have been saying it for over 200 years. And we laugh at them today. Don't trust in those horseless carriages. Well, it really wasn't the mechanization they were against. It was the whole idea that we are moving away from trusting in the Lord. We are putting our trust into the chariots. We're moving away from all the things, not just the comfort zone of old preachers that didn't want change. Um, no, they recognize there's a spiritual movement going on right on the heels of the technological movement. They recognize it in their day. And yes, you take running cold, hot, hot and cold running water for granted and we'd laugh at anyone that's against it. Um, the people that, you know, they preached against people taking too many baths. Yes, they did preach those sermons. What were they really trying to address? They're trying to address this movement to trust in man instead of trusting in the Lord. And we have gone so far down that road. We are so deep in that valley that the sun is lost sight to us. We can't see it. We can't see the brilliance of trusting in the Lord with all of our heart. We claim it. We speak it. But the fact is, when we go out and make decisions tomorrow at the workplace, at our home, at the grocery store, at, and tomorrow's tax day, um, at the, at the political level, at the voting booth, um, we trust in man. Absolutely. I asked my fellow pastors, what does America need? We need to vote. We need the church to get out and vote. Really? For who? Show it to me in the Bible. For who? You see, cursed is the man who trusts in man. And then he compares, he has two illustrations. And by the way, that's the negative. Let me get to the positive one. Verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is in the Lord. 
I'm going to trust the Lord. My hope, and this is not just wishful thinking, you know, hopefully the Lord will do something, you know. No, there's a sure confidence that the Lord is going to do something. He has done everything that I have needed. He will be faithful to complete what he has begun in me. And I don't just say that, I believe it, and I will walk according to it, and I will put my trust in that, and I will look into his word and say, this is truth, and there is something powerful behind it and authoritative that I can be laughed at by the world as being backwards and keep this word and be blessed. And it's radical stuff. And I've tried to implement this in my life in the last few years more than ever. Um, I was convicted of this very heavily um, in India, to tell you the truth. Um, since my trip to India, I've just con- I've, I, was, I was humbled. We are so arrogant because we're Americans and we have money that we think that we have the corner of the market on truth and righteousness and justice and godliness, and we don't. We're so far. And so I, it was one of those bright light experiences, and I started getting my Bible, and I started questioning everything. I started challenging everything, some things I had preached myself and had encouraged people into. And, and uh, um, I mean, I'm a guy that ran for an office once as a pastor. Political office, yeah, can you believe that? How many of you didn't know that about me? Valerie's going to raise her hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. You didn't know that. I ran for office once. And I had to begin at reaccessing everything because I had taken so much of what is our Americanism and I had brought it into the Bible and when I was confronted with the fact that these things aren't godly, these things aren't biblical, what precedent do you have in Scripture for going that direction of trusting in man instead of trusting in the Lord? And I began, and, and certainly it happened when we were in Cuba and in Peru and we saw people trusting the Lord on a scale, on a level that we just are disconnected from, frankly. And I began to challenge everything, our whole foundation of what we call our our godly heritage of instruction that we have been passed down from generations uh, uh, in America that was formulated more around the concepts of our early fathers than our Bibles. And I think you guys have seen the, that evidenced in my pulpit ministry. And some of it, frankly, is frightening to me. Frighteningly radical. To me. I almost made comment to it last Sunday in the middle of the message. I stopped myself from pursuing it at all. Uh, None of you have asked me about it, so I'm not going to even go any further. uh, About the whole moral direction. And I've made statements to people like, I was like, read your Bible. It's in there. Read your Bible. You want to know how to curb men's sexual appetite? Read your Bible. Read of the approved ways of God and the disapproved ways of God. 
Read it. You don't have to go far. Read Samuel. Read about Moses. Read about David. Read about these men. They had appetites, like any other man. What was the approved, biblical, God-approved way of dealing with those? Not divorce. That wasn't it. Not sleeping around. That wasn't it. Not adultery. That wasn't it. God disapproved all those. But he did approve of one way to curb that. But we bristle against it. Why? Because God approves it. But when we legalize everything God has disapproved. Oh, that's radical. Yes, it is. Do you trust in man? Or do you trust in the Lord? Trusting the Lord is so radical to us at this point I'm not sure I can consistently do it yet. I'm on a journey that frightens me to no end. Puts me at odds with almost all of my friend pastors. They're convinced that I'm nuts. They really are. When we go to camp and we're sitting around after the kids are in bed and talking away and we start talking theology, they're convinced I'm nuts. You know why? Because I take out my Bible and say, thus says the Lord. And they don't have a counter-argument to that. Every argument they use is one of man's and not God's. And this transformation isn't easy, and we have gone so far down the road of trusting in men that we can't recognize trusting in the Lord and hoping in him. And look at the difference of what these two lives are compared to. You want to trust in man? Here's what you're like. A shrub in the desert. We know what those are, right? We live in the desert. You're a shrub in the desert, people. And spiritually, that's exactly what we are. Oh, we're alive, but we got nothing going for us. This is the curse of God. You're a shrub. In the desert, look at it. In verse 6, you're like a shrub in the desert. You're not going to see it when good comes. You're going to inhabit parched places. The land is salty. There's no inhabitants. There's, you're alone. You've got poison at your roots. Salt is poison to plants. You, when good things happen around, it doesn't happen much to you. That irks me to no end. When I hear about people coming to the Lord and getting things right and walking with him in other places, I go, why can't that happen around here, Lord? Oh, we're shrubs in the desert because we're cursed because we trust in men. We don't trust in the Lord. Spiritually, we are destitute. We are in a desert spiritually because we trust in men. We trust it to do man's way. Well, this is the way we do it in this country. Really? Because other countries don't need to go into a 30-year mortgage. So I'm just going to pick on these two because I just bought a house. They don't need to go into a mortgage that's up to here to have a house to live in. No, they go out into the woods and they chop down a tree and then they live in that with walls for a little while without a roof. Um, when they have a, they finally get a bed, they roof over the bed and they cook in the corner on a fire. Do you remember that guy? Remember that, Brenda? Boy, you're a long way from that. 
we're convinced that's making it. The Bible says that's being a slave. You haven't arrived. You've arrived into slavery. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I picked on the Roberts earlier. Now it's your turn. Let's see who's next. <laughs> we are a shrub in the desert. Is God not doing good things? Yes, he's doing good things. They're just not around you because you're cursed because you're trusting in man. Are we alive? Barely. You ever seen the roots of plants in the desert? Most all of their roots are like in the first little bit of soil. They have one going way down in there, and praise God for the one going way down in there. Um, We still trust the Lord for our salvation. Not for anything else, but for our salvation, we trust in the Lord. We got the one tap root, and all the other roots are going, trying to soak up anything we can get in this little minuscule bit of soil. And most of the root is poisoned. It's salty. We're alone. It's not inhabited. It's parched, dry. And this is a, almost a perfect description of the spiritual state of most in the church today. Look at what it would be like if we truly understood trusting the Lord. A tree planted by the waters. When these rains happen around us in the desert, um, we recognize that by and large the shrubs out there only get however far their roots can reach in the first, what, inch of soil that it might penetrate if it's a heavy rain. Sometimes it's only half inch. That's why the weeds do so well. They're out there, and trees just don't grow out there much. Um, but uh, you plant something in a river, uh, the amazing thing is the rain doesn't have to fall by you. What's the purpose? What, was, what, what forms a river? The rain can fall anywhere in the valley upstream. It can, the rain can fall hundreds, hundreds of miles away and will benefit you. This afternoon, I get to go down to my property um, because my ditch rider put me off yesterday to today and irrigate our land from the Rio Grande River. Is that from the water falling today? No. The Rio Grande River water comes from way up in Colorado somewhere. We didn't have to have it snow here to benefit from that water, did we? It could happen way up there, and it could come to us. And God says, when you trust in me, even if there is desert-like conditions around you, I'll plant you next to a river. So that even when the drought happens, and yes, droughts happen around churches that are on fire for God, droughts happen where the evil is just all around us and it might seem like, oh, we're in deep trouble, but you are planted by a river. Your roots spread out by the river and it's there's no fear. Heat comes, I'm okay because I've got these roots deep into this and I have this nourishment coming and so my leaf will be green. I won't be anxious in the year of drought and I won't ever stop yielding fruit. Oh, that that would characterize the Christian life of our churches. 
We have no anxiety. We have no fear. And fear and anxiety mongering is, is an art form in our day and age. Um, we have no unfruitfulness because we are abounding not in the wisdom of man, not in the ways of man, not in the schemes of man, but we are abounding in trusting the Lord. And the Lord's goodness to us is what we have uh, driven our roots into, his almightiness, his promises, his, his righteousness. We have driven our roots into them, and that place doesn't dry up. The entire river would have to dry up. It would have to be, it would have to be gone for us to be in trouble. We know the river don't. And so here's this tree planted by the river. And I love the fact that it's, that it's planted. Notice that the shrub just was. A shrub in the desert. Nobody plants shrubs in the desert. Do you know that? They just happen. But you plant Trees that you want to have fruitfulness, you pick them up and you plant them in places where they're going to get good soil, good water, good sun. And brethren, spiritually, this is where we need to be. You want to claim the name Christian, then trust in the Lord. He will plant you in a place of blessing. And I'm not talking about what Joel Steen's talking about, that, that gobbly goop that's out there about oh, you know, everything's going to be wonderful for you. You're going to be wealthy, you know. and His kind are a dime a dozen. Um, Or a couple of million a dozen, whatever he's he's charging them people to preach to them, that nonsense. Um, No, we're talking about something much more substantive than that. We're talking about a spiritual nourishment that takes us through all the junk. And this is what Jeremiah had to depend upon. Realize that guys like Daniel, guys like Nehemiah, guys like Jeremiah, these guys lived through the same experiences the rest of Israel lived through. But they were fruitful. They were green. They were unafraid. They weren't anxious at all. Why? How can Daniel go to his window and pray knowing that there is a law in the land that says, you do that, you die. And he doesn't seem to be care. I'm not afraid. I'm not anxious. And I'm not going to stop being fruitful. Yes, the wisdom of man says, don't do that. You're going to lose your job. By the way, he was going to lose his job. You're going to lose your family. You're going to lose your life. You're going to lose your kids. You're going to lose this. You're going to lose that. Daniel says, well, I got the Lord. I'm going to go pray. I'm going to open my windows just like before. And I know there's people out there watching me. You know, they got the scope on me. They got their sniper rifles. They're ready to go. I don't care. I trust the Lord. He was ready to die. And look at his statement to the king. Well, whether I come out of the dying's den or not, <laughs> Lord's good to me. I haven't been rebellious to you, king. I've been disobedient, but not rebellious. There's a difference. O king, live forever. For the first words out of his mouth the next morning, out of the lion's den. 
O King, live forever. And the question that he's answering is the king's, Daniel, has your God saved you? And the answer is, yeah. Daniel trusts in the Lord. How could these guys do this? In the midst, these guys, Jeremiah, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of these guys, the other prophets, Nehemiah, um, Zerubbabel, uh, Ezra, all these guys lived through the same experiences that everyone else lived through. They lived through the same tragic end of Jerusalem and Judah. They lived through the same captivity that everyone else lived to. But why were they green and fruitful and unafraid and had no anxiety? Well, because they were planted by a river of strength that wasn't human. Because they didn't trust in humans. They trusted in the Lord. Can you just imagine, well, what does it hurt to just bend the knee and you don't have to actually pray, just kind of bend the knee and when the music plays to this idol. What can it hurt? That's the wisdom of man. The wisdom of God is don't you dare. Trust in the Lord. Yes, they're threatening your life. Trust in the Lord. He'll plant you by a river. You'll never stop being fruitful. Even if it requires your very life, your death. You'll never stop being fruitful. There are a lot of missionaries and other martyrs who have died and as a result of their death have generated maybe even more activity for God than their life. They had an impact on me. And like Nate Saint and Raju Darian, those kind of guys, they impacted my life by giving their own. They're still fruitful, even though they're sleeping. Trust in the Lord. With all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding or the understanding of men. In all your ways, every one of your ways, every, every nook and cranny of your life, acknowledge God has a right there. And He will direct your paths. And I'm trying. I'm trying to lead you by example. I'm trying to lead you by teaching um, into some radical territory of what it means to trust in the Lord differently than we've really ever been trained in in our lifetime, even the Fry's lifetime. And yeah, I don't laugh at those preachers who 200 years ago decried modern conveniences and what they were doing to family, to society, and ultimately to the fact that men trusted more and more throughout all of that in men and less and less in God. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word today. And Lord, we, 
All here, I'm sure, want to be trees planted by rivers of water, producing a fruit green in the leaf, unafraid of drought, and, and never anxious. We all want to be in that state of your grace. But the condition frightens us. To trust in you completely. And Lord, we're just not good at it anymore. And so we pray for your help to help us understand what it means to truly trust in the Lord and having that understanding to then have the courage to implement that into our lives. And to stand up, trusting in you no matter what. Rejoicing that we are blessed. Whether the world, from their view, thinks of us as blessed or not. Whether it means that we have to be dropped in a hole or put into prison or dragged around with fetters on our wrists and ankles as Jeremiah was. Lord, that we can have a confidence that we are still in a blessed state because we have trusted in you. And Lord, we acknowledge that we have a spiritual lack of appetite for your truth and a seemingly insatiable appetite for the schemes of men. Forgive us. And Lord, we pray you might turn that on its end. This day and each day. That we might bring praise to your name in a state of being a tree that you've planted in a fruitful place. We pray says in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.